My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. Never was a polymath. Polymath. Not a fan of the word. Sounds a little new agey. You know? I really wanted to sound more like polemoth, sort of suggesting a, a person of monstrous and unstoppable force like behemoth, but whatever. Let's be honest. No one likes a polymath, okay? Too intimidating. Who needs a know it all? When was the last time you said, hey, let's hang out with that guy that's way better than all of us? Hey, family. Check out my A- in geometry and in walks your cum laude honors cousins asking what all the fuss is about. No, thank you. This is actually a real problem in my family. Smart cousins. I'm surrounded. Polyman. Closest I'm going to get to such a title is saying it correctly, so bully for me. Bemoaned often. Never learned an instrument. Never really learned a skill all the way through. Just sort of cruising on charm, maybe? That's debatable, really. Want to know something? I'm a bad doctor. I'm not boasting. I mean, who would? Just stating a fact. I've never really gotten the hang of the whole healing the sick thing. And don't interpret this as, as some sort of false modesty, please. It's not. It's not like I'm weak in some areas. No, I'm homogeneously unqualified to practice medicine in any capacity. I really don't have a clue. And no one can be more shocked than me that I've been allowed to rise to a position of such importance and responsibility. I guess it all started in high school where I was a very bad science student. One day when we were supposed to be uh, dissecting a frog, I accidentally disassembled my desk. Uh, but, you know, I was a popular kid. You know, the other students were always very eager to help me out. So, you know, during a test, whenever I get that confused look on my face, which was invariably... <laughs> Well, the cheat notes would just start flying. <laughs> Even the teachers would start whispering answers, you know, <coughs> mitochondria. <laughs> but I didn't worry about it. I figured, how far can you coast on charm? <laughs> well, pretty far, actually. <laughs> they just offered me the job of chief of surgery. <laughs> Apparently, I've logged more hours in surgery than any other man my age. 4,000 hours this year alone. What no one seems to have noticed is that it was all with the same patient. <laughs> oh, I want to show you something. You know what this is? Urine. Another man's urine. I ask for it, and they give it to me. Jack of all trades. Master of none. I'm pretty close on that one, actually. But I honestly don't think that anything I am a jack of even really qualifies. I just kind of coast. Polymaths do not coast, okay? They trudge. Polymath. I just don't think the word lends itself to the definition. I mean, even, in, even the definition is kind of meh. A person of wide-ranging knowledge or learning. I mean, come on. Per mouth fart city. Probably a definition made by mere mortals. My guest tonight? Let's see. Art, music, instrumentation, graphic design, motorcycles, probably archery or ice sculpting, and now a father? I mean, come on. Polymath. No other word really describes him, so this is the one we get. I will not call him a renaissance man. This isn't a 70s sitcom, so it turns out we actually can do worse than the word polymath. So of whom am I speaking? Well, Ryan Clark is on the show this week and next, everybody. A bona fide polemoth. That's what I'm going with. An actual living and breathing badass in his own right. Here's the kicker. He's probably throwing up on himself right now. Should he ever actually have the time to listen to this? This is just it's way too much praise for someone who is not an egomaniac, and he just isn't one. He's humble, quiet, and unassuming. He took a little time out of his exhausting schedule to hang out with me for a couple hours. That's right. For the next two weeks, Ryan Clark and I talk Depeche Mode, How You Can't Win, and Baby Explosions. And, of course, Demon Hunter, Training for Utopia, and even some Focal Point. We will also discuss Anxiety the Spartan Records debut of his new band, Knives. 
Knives is Ryan's new project with uh, Randy Torres, yet another polymathic freak. Anxiety comes out today. It seems I've tripped and fallen and somehow ended up doing some promo. So what's up now? What's up now? We'll also talk a couple surprises, one of which is very special to my heart. A collaborative effort between Ryan and myself, something I'm very excited to share with you later. Not yet, but soon. I can tell you this, it's probably not what you think. Now the song you're about to hear is from the aforementioned Anxiety. It's called Something Divine. And if you stick around to the end of the show, you will hear it in its entirety. I ask this, sit back, relax, get to know my buddy Ryan, and think about this. Whatever difficult task you might be doing as you're listening to this episode, Ryan's probably doing like nine more and changing a baby's diaper. So there's that. We've talked a few times with the album layouts. I think the first time I ever talked to you was with Neon Horse. Does that sound right? Probably. I mean, you know, like since the 90s, yeah. Our paths crossed a few times in uh, like way back. But, you know, I would say, yeah, since 2000. That was probably the first time we we talked. It's interesting that you would mention that the 90s. Well, I had first heard of you through Training for Utopia. Right. I wasn't privy to that. I had no idea about anything. I didn't know where you guys came from. I didn't know, you know, in a conversation I just had with Luxury, those guys being from Georgia, they were sort of a mystery to to a lot of us. You know, there was like this kind of weird balance where you got all these bands from California, particularly Southern California, and then everybody else. Yeah. So anybody who didn't come from that fold, we don't know who they are. We don't know where they came from. They instantly sort of go to this other place in our heads. And so when we were, I think we were doing... I can tell you the first time, I th- as far as my recollection goes, the first time that we played with Stavesaker, it was at some random little festival. It was one of Project 86's first shows, too. Okay. It was not very well attended. It was in California. All right. My brother's really good at, at uh, all those details of tour, and I am the exact opposite. I the, the next day, I'll basically forget where we were and what the place looked like. <laughs> but he has this like yeah. photographic memory of every place we've played, and... I don't have that at all. Me either. The main thing that hits with me is that Training for Utopia did Plastic Soul. Plastic Soul Impalement. Yeah, that was with um, with Brian Carlstrom, who was my, yeah. you know, I had known him for about seven or eight years before we even first recorded with him. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that connection. I met him when the Crucified was still together, actually, and we were trying to figure out who was going to do our next album. Ocean Records, of all the things that they were terrible at, were great about introducing me to other people. I ended up having, you know, a couple sit-down dinners with Brian. And then once we finally got in there and started to do our music, I just remember that you guys were coming through. Project 86 was also coming through. Mm -hmm. But then from that point on, man, I lost all, like, I had no idea where you guys went to. Yeah, it was a a blurry. Towards the end of the 90s, everything started to kind of, like... I don't want to say fall apart, but just like everything changed. You know, we did the, the Plastic Soul Impalement, which was like the first full length. And that was coming off of the heels of 
an EP that we did our uh, uh, on our own and Tooth and Nail signed us basically based off of that. Mm-hmm. And so that was like the full, you know, the first official release Tooth and Nail was like paying for and putting together. Um, and then we did another split EP with Zayo in like 98, I want to say. And then we did our last full length, which was like a total departure, total left field kind of record. Right. Isn't that like a bunch of remixes and stuff? And Yeah, it's just, it incorporates a lot of electronic elements. It was the result of us kind of diving into a different kind of music as far as the stuff we were listening to. There's this band Atari Teenage Riot mm-hmm. that we were really into, mm-hmm. which... A lot of people that have never heard them, they um, they hear the Training for Utopia record and they're like, man, I've never heard anything like it. And it's like, if you listen to an Atari Teenage Riot record, <laughs> then you're like, oh, okay, that's I get it. Uh-huh. Not that it was, you know, it, Atari Teenage Riot didn't have like that metal edge that we put into it, but we were definitely kind of pulling from that. So yeah, that was like kind of a weird record. And then after that, the band just kind of fizzled a little bit. I think some of the guys went back to school. My brother moved to Arizona to be with his fiance and lived there for a little while. Um, We actually played as a three-piece without my brother for a couple shows. And then he ended up moving back up here. We toyed around with this idea of doing an electronic project, just my brother and I, called Prototype. And we actually demoed some songs. And we actually had a deal from Tooth & Nail that I don't think... I guess we never signed it because we did these demos and then we decided to move to Seattle and everything kind of changed. come from then if your brother moved to arizona you guys went to seattle i mean i don't we were northern california so you were you're california based yep so i was born in whittier okay and then only lived there for a year my folks moved to bend oregon which is central oregon um everyone's heard of it now but when we lived there it was a very small town Mm -hmm. now it's kind of become like a vacation destination like after like snowboarding and all that kind of started to boom became like a huge destination because Mount Bachelor is close by. Okay. Um, a bunch of other mountains. And uh, so we were there for nine years until I was 10 years old. And then we moved to Northern California. So the, those first 10 years are still, you know, for me, pretty blurry. But mm-hmm. um, what I consider like my upbringing is definitely California. So we lived in just south of Sacramento in a a place called Elk Grove, um, which more and more people seem to have heard heard of these days. Um, one of the major Apple computer uh, plants okay. is actually in what's called Laguna Creek, which is like a like the sub version of Elk Grove. I don't know if it's its actual city at this point. I know for a while they were going to separate the two, mm. um, but my my folks' address is still Elk Grove, so I think it's still considered Elk Grove. Okay, but anyway, if you order like a, a Mac. It kind of anywhere in the nation, there's a good chance it'll come from there. Okay. On the return address. Um, so I lived there until 2000. And um, that's kind of when we, during the, the mid to late 90s is when we really dove into music and got our feet wet. And then when it, when things started to kind of fizzle with training, my brother got a job offer in Seattle to work at this company to doing 
basically design work. Okay. He had done a little bit of that in the in the past, but it was mostly just freelance and just kind of whatever he could get his hands on. And uh, this was during the big dot com boom, and so there right, was like right. all these rumors of like all this crazy money, and there was a bunch of crazy money, and it it went about as fast as it came. He moved up here, and I kind of moved up with him just on a whim, um, just for fun. I, I was working at a record store and. <laughs> didn't have a ton of stuff going on i I saw myself kind of staying there forever and getting kind of trapped and so he was like do you want to move to seattle with us and i was like yeah why not so he and his wife moved up and actually a friend of ours uh dimitri and his wife moved up as well because my brother and dimitri got the job together okay so they that lasted man i want to say probably like six months or something until that company folded um it was a dot-com boom that happened at least up here and i think it kind of happened um you know in california as well it was like this huge you know, everyone's kind of grabbing it at straws and there was this money just coming out of everyone's ears. And then all of a sudden everything started to kind of plateau. And I think companies, I think the strong maybe survived and and all the fringe basically fell off. Right. And so all these small companies around town that had like waterfront property and like everyone was in an air on chair and everyone had big displays and offices and all this stuff. Like within a year, they were all like empty and gone, empty buildings with like stacks of chairs, (laughs) you know? So he went from that place to another place surprisingly with Dimitri they were kind of a package deal um and throughout that time I was working at like a used clothing store we hadn't really dove back into music yet at that point but a good friend of ours was working at the time at the tooth and nail art department and you know we knew everyone there just from our, our history there so we would visit and at one point the uh the other guy in the art department left and so there was a void there I didn't know anything about graphic design at that time I was just starting to kind of dabble with it okay um, so your brother was kind of the lead and you were just sort of in the yeah, periphery there exactly yeah he he definitely knew what he was doing and uh, I would use his computer I lived with him for the first couple months I lived up there but um, at this point I had my own place and we kind of had this like interim office at at Greg who was working at uh, the tooth and nail art department Greg Patterson we had a little office in his apartment Um, it's funny like his thinking back basically had this like studio apartment and then in in the main living room there was like four desks with like IMAX (laughs) and we would go in there at night and just kind of like whatever we could get our hands on we'd work on yeah and our our relationships in the music industry kind of gave way to to our first like client base and at that point we you know the company was called Asterix Studio okay I remember that and that was the first kind of amalgamation of of what we're doing these days but everyone's kind of spread out now you say everyone's spread out but is like you're talking about invisible creatures are we you know is that just you and 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 don or yeah exactly so i'll try and i'll try and put this in as much of a uh, nutshell as i can so sure from there i was as i started kind of dabbling in design they needed someone else in the art department um greg thought that he could kind of prime me to take that position i thought i was it was way too early because i still didn't know really what the hell i was doing i interned quote unquote um, there for a few weeks, just basically because Brandon like liked me, knew I was into art, and knew I could probably swing it if I worked at it a little bit. Sure. So I interned there and just like basically asked a, a million questions in a couple weeks' time, just learning like what a megabyte is and how to, <laughs> I email. And I mean, it just I was completely ignorant to all that stuff. Um, this is really weird for me to even hear this as a possibility. I just assumed you were born doing this <laughs> stuff. So <laughs> no, I mean I was. The difference is I was into art heavy like my whole life that's that's definitely a fact um you know all my school papers had doodle, doodles mm-hmm. all over them i was the only uh student in the advanced placement class at my school because it was a brand new school we were the first graduating class and they didn't really have they didn't really have the infrastructure for classes like that okay so i kind of begged them to put one together which ended up being me drawing in a room by myself for two <laughs> hours because it was a block course uh scheduling sweet deal for you so yeah and you know i would win all the art awards at school and stuff like that but drawing and in high school graffiti was was the thing okay. so that's that's all i did i had sketchbooks full of stuff and i would go paint walls and trains and freeways and all that stuff nice so that's where I was focused. And then when music came about, that really kind of took over. And so the late 90s, I didn't really cultivate that that visual art thing, kind of put that on hold. Mm-hmm. So when we moved up to Seattle, it was like, oh, I really want to, I want to get a job doing art. You know, the band thing is, is volatile at best and it's fun to do, but it would be really nice to actually make a living doing something I love. Sure. And obviously at that time, my second passion was design.
So Brandon throws me a bone. I am interning there. I learn as much as I can. I'm doing little print ads and things um, and all these zines back when Tooth & Nail still did like small zine print ads and stuff. Yeah. Getting my feet wet with that. Figuring out all that jazz and then get hired uh, and then major fast forward, you know, Greg leaves. I hire a new guy. I'm the art director. That guy leaves. I hire another new guy. And, you know, I end up being there 12 years working with a, a bunch of different designers. And the art department looks anywhere from just me to um, just me and two other guys at any given time. Hmm. It's uh, depending on how, where the label was at and whether or not they could afford it and stuff like that. So, um, But you stayed pretty much consistently. I mean, it was... It was you and whoever else they could afford, basically. Yeah. At one point, you know, the glory days, I would say like 2004 or five, um, we had me and uh, I had a designer under me working. And then we also had like a web interactive guy, which was awesome because, um, you know, there wasn't a need for that before that. Hmm. And then it started to be like pretty much all the marketing and all the stuff was online. And so it was really beneficial to have a, an interactive guy, a web guy. And so we got to take advantage of that for a while while we could while we could afford one and then kind of realized that sure after those glory days started to fade um it was kind of back to two people and then towards my the end of my time there it was down to one and uh now I don't think they have an art department I think they outsource everything It's so crazy man I mean it's still fresh enough to be interesting to people how much the music industry has changed over the last 15 years. I mean, you know, 2000 doesn't seem like that long ago, but in terms of, of changes, it's because it all happened so fast. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was the same for like a hundred years. And then, and then all of a sudden, like within the course of like five years, because yeah. I mean, honestly, the tooth and nail, it was, it seemed like, you know, I've, I've been in some part of the label since 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I've been either signed or working there or signed and working there since 95, so 20 years. And it sure seems like the actual explosion was like in 2002, 2003, like when Under Oath, you know, was number two on Billboard and yeah. um, Amber Lynn like just signed and like all these, all these bands were just kind of blowing up and crossing over and all this stuff. That was like the pinnacle, <laughs> or at least it seemed like it. I, I, I feel like it was. And then within a couple of years it's just like everything and you know i think tooth and nail weathered the storm a little better than a lot of indie labels yeah uh, and they they still are i would work with like roadrunner records doing artwork and stuff and at one point they they fired the the art director there that i'd worked with um and a bunch of other people and like their entire european staff and it was oh, just man. like if nickelback is on roadrunner and nickelback is like one of the biggest <laughs> rock bands in the world right yeah, i mean yeah. Hate them, I'm sure most people do. No but they way, sell dude, tens of about? millions of records, you know. Yeah. And so, if the label that has Nickelback is like firing half their staff, like there's problems. What, what chance does any of us have? Yeah. The best way to really measure the way things changed with Tooth and Nail was uh, the second Staves Acre left Tooth and Nail, everything got awesome. So you could also look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's exactly how people would view it. Uh, for sure. I mean, clearly it's, oh yeah, we finally got rid of the dead weight. Now we can be great. And yeah, right. <laughs> Man. Those days were very different. The 90s Tooth and Nail days were so much different than the, than the 2000s. And there was something really exciting about especially the early 2000s working there, you know, like sure. after yeah. being, you know, signed to bands on the label and, and being a big part of it, you know, I met my wife there, my brother met his wife there. Like there's just, there's a ton of, of history there and relevance in our lives. But when you look back and think back about the 90s and just the way that everything was happening for Tooth & Nail, it was like nothing, nothing beats that. And for people that, you know, bands that got signed like in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, like I understand it's probably a very exciting time for them, but I don't want to take away from their experience, but just nothing com- compares to what was happening in the 90s because I it was so, so new and fresh and like there wasn't... That was exciting, man. It's like there was this giant void and then they came and yeah. filled that void. Did you ever get um, out to the cornerstone festival during that time in the 90s oh yeah we played the first one i played was in 97 with focal point i mean that was that was the prime absolutely Um, it was craziness peter king was he there when you were there do you remember that i don't remember he was like an mtv dj guy or vj guy and he was he had the band dakota motor company and they were oh yeah like they sort of were the beginning like it was a there was definitely a phenomenon oh, yeah. happening the, there. The tooth and nail day, the first year they did that. Oh, man. I mean, it was just like, 
it was insanity and it was like a family reunion i mean it's a yeah. pretty big bummer that you know it all kind of fizzled out we actually played the not the last year but the year before the last year when they mm-hmm. were still paying bands <laughs> i think yeah, the last year yeah. it was kind of like a pay-to-play kind of situation but we played we we headlined one of the nights on the on the last or i think devil wars prada headlined we supported on the main stage and it was you know, it was fun and all, but it was in, in terms of how Cornerstone used to be, it was pretty bleak. Yeah, kind of a bummer. So getting back to you and uh, Asterisk and eventually Invisible Creature, I mean, obviously art was a major part of your life. You're doodling all the time, drawing all the time. I mean, was art a, a big thing in your family? Was uh, was everyone involved? I mean, obviously your brother is heavily involved. Yeah, so we basically got that from my mom's dad, um, okay. my grandpa, Al Paulson. He... Um, he worked as an illustrator his whole life. Primarily, about twenty-eight years of that was for NASA. Wow! So, what? Give me that time frame here. What are we talking about? Gosh, I'm going to butcher this. I would say late fifties, sixties, seventies. Yeah, dude. So that's like the height of the mid-century. Oh yeah, that's yeah. It was cool definitely right in there. Shit, right there for sure. <laughs> yeah, and he. I mean, if you go to the uh, the Invisible Creature blog. Um, there is, there should be, you know, you can kind of filter your results. There should be like an Al Paulson f- from the files of Alfred Paulson or something like that. There's some of his, his illustration stuff up there awesome. and he's like a real multidisciplinary guy. I mean, he would do early airbrush stuff, um, renderings, um, and he would do pen and ink and he had a real definitive mid-century style, like almost a cartoony kind of style to a lot of his stuff. But then he would do these just like pristine, like split maps of of the inside of ships and detailed like instructions and things like that um please tell me that you have some of those things we have a ton of it we i think we have most of it between my brother and i nice Um, my grandma passed a couple years ago and Mm. um actually right after my grandpa passed which was in 95 Mm. um we got a ton of it we have a bunch of of extended family on that side a bunch of cousins but my brother my brother and i were kind of the ones that picked up the the art mantle showed the most interest in that stuff yeah, yeah. and so my, my grandma basically hooked us up with all that stuff uh, his entire library which is you know hundreds of books and then everything from his like embosser for his books to his art supplies which wow. are awesome but totally outdated at this point <laughs> sure, um, sure i draw on his art table on his desk oh that's um, incredible man yeah and so we have a ton of ton of his illustration stuff too a lot of it might be stuff that technically we can't really show although we never stopped us before but i think some of it is is that nasa stuff that you L- know, little top secret there little, yeah it might, might be a little <laughs> a little edgy my mom was a you know she would sing at church so there wasn't she's a great singer so there was like that side of things. My dad played guitar. Okay, so mom, mom and dad were both musicians. Yep, they were, my parents were both musical, yeah. um, as well as my the aunt and uncle that lived closest to us. Um, they put out like Christian folk records back in the seventies and stuff. Huh. Um, what? What? Come on, give me some names. What we got here? <laughs> um, they were uh, well. It's John and Laura Cowan. Um, okay. They put out a record called Like a Vessel or Just a Vessel. It was like a Maranatha music thing oh, back in the yeah, 70s. Oh, yeah, Maranatha. <laughs> but my Uncle John's like a really great like folk finger-picking guitar player. And uh, like my dad's a great guitar player as well. My dad actually builds guitars now, and they're incredible. No kidding. Incredible guitars. Is, is it under his own name or? Yeah, it's Curtis Clark Guitars. <laughs> and he, you know, he only he makes them about as fast as he can on top of a, a regular job at the, I think at some point it'll become maybe a full-time thing for him I, I really hope that it does but um oh, good for him, yeah he's he's sold them you know everyone that he makes he, he sells or gives away his gifts and I mean he sells them for what you'd buy a Martin for so it's wow legit far out man what's the name again Curtis Clark Curtis Clark Guitars. cool I think I think he still has a little website up probably needs updating but oh well, yeah uh, whoever could he reach out to for something like that Take the one in the darkness. When they come back to, I can't fucking live with the oxygen. 
Do you have any other brothers and sisters, or it's just you and Don? Just me and Don. So yeah, it was basically, you know, when we were real young, it was Grandpa and his artwork, and we knew about that whole thing. And like I said, in the 90s, it kind of took a left turn when we got into punk rock and metal. And Sure. I learned how to play guitar when I was 13, and for the sole purpose, you know, to be in a band. And so it was me and a bunch of friends kind of learning instruments simultaneously so we could start a band which eventually you know after a few different formations ended up being focal point and right and that's where you kind of got started yeah when i was focal point the one that did the the ep that brandon signed or was it still was this after that focal point no we've been playing a lot around sacramento we'd play reno and we'd go and play southern cal every once in a while mm-hmm. so we were kind of like you know doing it real diy and at one point, we got the opportunity to play with Overcome, which was a fairly new signing to Solid Stare, <laughs> Tooth & Nail, probably actually at that uh-huh. point, Tooth & Nail. We got an opportunity to play with them. We really liked their new record, and it was in Bakersfield. My gosh. And um, played at this little club. I mean, there's probably 20 people there. That's my stomping grounds, man. San Joaquin Valley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Any shows in Fresno um, for my Fresno people? We played one. I think we played one show in Fresno. I don't remember where. I want to say probably a pizza oh. place. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, Jerry's Pizza, probably. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so we played this place in, in uh, down in Bakersfield with Overcome. And after that, you know, we kind of got to talking with the Overcome guys and made friends. And after that, Jason Stinson, the singer, called Brandon and was like, you got to sign this band, man. They're awesome. And nice. Brandon called... Okay, we'll rewind a little bit. We had the opportunity to put out a 7-inch on this small label that this guy, Dan Gump, who lived in Salt Lake City, uh, was was doing. And he used to be in a band called Excessive Force. It was basically this kind of primarily straight-edge label doing 7-inches called Life Sentence Records. So we got a chance to do a record through him because he liked our stuff. Um, I think we'd passed around a cassette for a while and he, he got, got an earful and came out to Sacramento, watched us practice, wanted to put out a seven inch. We did that. Overcome also put out a seven inch with him while they were on Tooth and Nail. I think they, you know, their deal wasn't super exclusive. And okay. Tooth and Nail has always been cool with that kind of stuff. So they put out a seven inch on Life Sentence and we did shortly after. So we had that kind of connection. So Brandon had heard this. Actually, at that point, he hadn't heard anything. Jason calls him tells brandon to sign us and sends him or actually i'm sorry brandon calls us because jason had our number on the seven inch asks us for a seven inch but also says he's just kind of interested in signing us like sight unseen okay because apparently jason stinson is really picky all right and so he was like anything jason stinson says is good like i know it's good so left a message on you know our answering machine at our folks house where we were living and it was kind of just like you know for kids that lived drank right. ate walked tooth and nail like for the last yeah. few years you know it's like the holy grail <laughs> yeah. so santa claus called the house yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah yeah so it was like he wanted a seven inch and he wanted us to play the tooth and nail fest or whatever it was at, at this point it changed name to suburbia oh yeah it's like this fest that they did in socal um i think it was suburbia too i think i might have played that show yeah you probably did it was like unashamed supertones was there a kid on a plank eye on a three wheel like a like a big wheel maybe there was a poster for one of those things this kid on yes a po- yes on yes, a big yes, wheel. yes that yeah definitely i think i still have that thing somewhere around here. i think i do too somewhere um so yeah we played that and that was basically before we were signed mm-hmm. that was almost like a showcase for us although I, i'm pretty sure we, we had it in the bag we went and played that as kind of like a, a showcase and we were so like you know we were so nervous because <laughs> it was like unashamed and all these bands that like we were we like looked up to you know yeah i think focus focus played might have played it and stuff and then we get there and uh we quickly realized that like we had our stuff together like way oh, more than yeah. the fans. Um, it was like I think someone in Unashamed like borrowed a, our guitar yeah. and like we had to like do the whole like foot switch tutorial oh, thing yeah. and you know it was really interesting because we were like so 
so freaked out to play this thing and then we were like oh i think we kind of know what we're doing yeah there was a lot of kind of funny there was a lot of duct tape and glue back then (laughs) yeah the funny thing i've I've talked about this with uh people over the years is i'll meet a kid at a show or something you know oh i can't believe you know you know tim mann or blah blah blah. like dude that guy was my roommate yeah but it wasn't like i still think that that perception thing is just so wacky you know oh it's so it's super weird yeah No, no one ever really has the right picture in their head and those bands were all just barely barely getting by oh yeah and just barely being able to play but i I don't think that was exclusive just to us i mean we we talked about brian carlstrom earlier you know brian was my friend but also i was a fan of his work right yeah he would always have all these great stories him and dave jordan and all the crazy stuff that they did together you know because dave was crazy but he told me like you know orange nine millimeters driver not included it was like a hugely impactful album on Staves Acre in the early days. We, we loved that record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we get into the studio with Brian and finally getting to ask him all these questions. And he was like, oh, yeah, man, that drummer could not play. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, <laughs> uh, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard, like, that this dude doesn't know how to sing, like, to a click or on a grid and so-and-so, ha- so-and-so has to sing it for him. And, and there was one band that Brian, now this is not, this is before the digital thing. I mean, he had to cut the album into time, like, actual yeah. two inch tape with a razor slicing it you know you think this is so beautiful and powerful when it's done but the truth is, is it's just like anything else it's duct tape and glue man oh totally and that's i think that's like across the board really i mean if it's not like some guy doesn't know how to play his instrument well which is seems to be something that you hear almost every band has one of those guys mm-hmm. it's like the drug addiction guy or whatever it is you know like there's always some oh, yeah. something that you don't see or you the don't... imbecile in the band who can't pay his bills on time and who you know who set the van on fire totally i remember them talking about um lane when they were recording that record and oh my god just how he'd be in the bathroom all the time just just chasing the dragon and yep you know he call, he'll call it like 3 a.m and be like i'm ready to record you know having not been there the day before. <laughs> I remember those suburbia shows. That was also such an early time for some. I mean, most of these guys, I was even 25, 26 years old. I mean, half the bands were 16, 17 years old. Of course they didn't have their act together. <laughs> yeah, we got it. I got a really early start. So that was in in a way, you know, I don't see myself as starting like when you guys are living sacked it or whatever. But mm-hmm. when I, this point, it almost feels like I'm more a part of that era than I am of like the new, this new kind of, yeah. Even though I'm still involved in it, yeah, it's I feel like the old guy that doesn't get what's going on these. You know what I mean? What's going on with these kids these days? Oh yeah, I'm familiar with the thing. You know, yeah, and you know anyone that was that toured without cell phones, <laughs> where they, everyone in the band would have like calling cards. Yeah, oh yeah. Anyone who put out a record pre-internet, you know, booked their entire tour on a landline from their parents' house. Oh man, because that was the only way to do it. Any those days, like, I, yeah, you know, I don't. There's so many bands these days that have no idea oh yeah like what what that was all about what do you mean you have the the atlas from two years ago there's this freeway isn't doesn't here anymore it's gone (laughs) (laughs) totally
a huge span of time to cover here because even though, like you said, you're still actively with this, you know, with the later era of Tooth and Nail, you have been doing it for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't realize until I started really kind of trying to prepare for this talk, like how many albums Demon Hunter put out, plus mm-hmm. the Training for Utopia records, plus all the design work. You carved a pretty pretty wide swath there for me to try to <laughs> I can tr- I can try and put it in a in a nutshell. Well yeah, I mean what I would like to know is even early on Training for Utopia there was definitely especially that I mean my buddy Dean has the tattoo of the Training for Utopia album cover wrapping around his arm with the soldiers, you know. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. My buddy Josh, who still to this day reps in, in invisible creature stuff. He's a little he's an illustrator himself. All those early Training for Utopia records translated image wise as well as music you know right and now like yeah demon hunter is there and i think the it's synonymous with design and with images i mean just that logo you know or the the emblem with the mm-hmm. the skull and the bullet hole through it i mean that's just it's been the two are 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 one and the same for me yeah i mean it was always important um my brother actually flew up to tooth and nail when we were living in elk grove to lay out the first focal point record um we had uh, someone illustrate the cover for it but he laid it all out and he used to do our seven inches and you know we would hire photographers and other people to do some of the stuff but he was at the same time you know he was doing you know he did all the artwork for um throwing a wrench in the american music machine and he was also doing like at the time um zeo where blood and fire like he did that and like the spitfire one you know brandon started using my brother to do a handful of of designs Mm -hmm. uh, jobs and so he was doing that from california or from arizona and um yeah, it's just always, you know, we, we've always kind of been split between like art jobs and and music jobs. And so the two are very much like synonymous. And when we started Demon Hunter, it was, we didn't even have to have the conversation. It was just kind of understood that like the aesthetic of the band was going to be an important aspect. Yeah. And so everything that we did, whether it was the merch or the photo shoot or the videos or the packaging for the record and, you know, just would have a unified theme and voice and it would all be cohesive and it'd all be great and it would all be just high quality and we wouldn't kind of like leave any stone unturned in terms of like the aesthetic of the band. So it's, it's clear. It's always been pretty clear. That is such a great emblem anyway, man. Yeah, that that thing we uh, I basically put that thing together before, you know, we had. I don't even think we'd started writing music at that point. We had the idea to do the band. Mm -hmm. We had the name and I came up with that thing. (laughs) And um, Brandon suggested that we put it on a shirt and put it in the solid state store. And that was before, literally before we'd even like sat down to write a song. Man, I remember this. Yeah. I actually, Brandon and I hadn't, I hadn't burned my bridge with Brandon yet at that time. And we (laughs) used to be buddies and I remember him talking about this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it took, it took different forms. Like in the first few months, it was like how tongue in cheek is is this thing going to be right because there was a little bit of tongue-in-cheek thing at the beginning there for sure was yeah yeah our first interview was like a total total sarcasm mm-hmm. interview and it was you know what i mean like the name we had names right. for everyone in the band that like we're just you know totally irreverent and whatever okay clear something up for me there was a picture correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> there's a picture and there was you know obscured if you will faces of the members of the band mm-hmm. was brandon ebel in that picture i told you nothing was off limits huh um <laughs> <laughs> that's right uh You didn't think I could resist that, did you? Little teasy poo for next week. It's just a little tease. Don't get mad. Most of you know the answer anyway, so you know, just you'll be fine. We did a poll. Turns out you'll be fine. And for those of you who who don't know the answer, we will see you next week. Listen, I know this week was kind of short, um, but you know, it was too much for one and not enough for two, so we had to spread it out. Sue me. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. We had a lot of music to cover, and I don't know how to do it all justice. I, I did my best. Um, but as far as Ryan himself is concerned, he's just getting started. We'll be back next week. We're going to talk about all kinds of other stuff, including a few things you may not even know. But what I also want to say is is that I know the two episodes prior to this, uh, the in or out episodes, are kind of heavy. And uh, 
you know, maybe not the easiest thing to talk about, but I welcome any correspondence you may want to have with me regarding those episodes or anything you've heard on this show. If you have an opinion about it, if you're upset about it, or if you uh, if you have something to add to the conversation, that is what the show is here for. So by all means, shoot me an email at the Twilight Zone at INeverWas.com. That's the Twilight Zone at INeverWas.com. No Z's, all one word. Let's get the digital campfire going. We need more voices, not less. Um, as before, you know, there's a link on the Patreon to the Patreon tip jar on, on the show page. If you can contribute, awesome. If you feel so inclined, that'd be great. If you can't, please share the show. Post this thing up on your Facebook or your Twitter. Let people know that it's out there. I, I need that, frankly. I need that kind of help. So let, it, let it be known. If you think someone might enjoy this conversation, tell them the door's open. With those who have contributed to the Patreon account, I just want to say thank you. Charles Brenneman, Raven, PT, Alan Parrish, and Ben Knight. Thank you. Thank you for contributing and thank you for caring. You know, everybody out there that's been supporting the show, I appreciate it very, very much. Um, this show is produced by Billy Power of Urban Achievers Show. This episode and all other episodes can be found on iTunes and we can be reached on Twitter and Facebook. So this is it. Your invitation is live. Tonight, we heard a little blast from the past, a Stavesacre favorite, The Kids in the Hall. I, I swear we watched that Bad Doctor skit a hundred times. It's a great illustration of my own incompetence, so there you go. Uh, we heard Training for Utopias, Two Hands, and New York is Overrated, as well as Focal Points Violated. That's way back. And as promised, right after this is over, right after my dumb voice is done, the full version of Something Divine from Anxiety, Knives, new album out today on Spartan Records. Any other music that you hear on this show was from White Lighter's self-titled debut on Northern Records. Thank you very much. Thank you for supporting. We'll see you next week. Until then, rainbow out.
Give me a song